In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Tonight's topic is very important because I believe it really digs to the heart of why we're Catholic. I mean, really, if you think about why we're Catholic, we put a lot of trust and a lot of uh, faith in the authority of the church. Why is the church the supreme authority on matters of faith and morals? If you actually think about it. So we'll start off here tonight. Uh, just something I usually do when I give talks is I just pledge my allegiance to Holy Mother Church, uh, that I'm a faithful Catholic and that I will speak everything here tonight to be in consistency with the church's teaching. I pledge my allegiance um, to the magisterium and uh, to the best of my ability, uh, my work here, what I'll say here tonight is uh, hopefully contains no error or doc- uh, anything against faith or morals. So I was, that's sort of my quality assurance, a bit about, a uh, bit of my quality assurance, uh, wherever I go to make sure that, you know, we're not saying anything against the faith. That's something I, I take very seriously. Um, and uh, tonight I'm going to be using two key terms that you might want to remember during the course of the talk. And the two key terms are uh, uh, the church. That's the first term. I'm going to be using the word church. When we say the word church, what I refer to here tonight in my talk refers to the Pope, bishops, and clergy. So when I say the church, I'm talking about the Pope, bishops, so the actual hierarchical church. I'm also going to be speaking about authority. When I say the word authority during my talk, um, I'm referring to the unique power conferred to by Christ, but it doesn't allude to any inequality. It's just simply the authority of the church. So those are the two key terms I'm going to be using here tonight. Um, the church and authority, those are the two th- two key things to remember, what they mean during the cause in the context of this talk. So if we could start with a quick prayer from St. Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, divine creator, true source of light and fountain of wisdom, pour forth your brilliance upon my dense intellect, dissipate the darkness which covers me, that of sin and of ignorance. Grant me a penetrating mind to understand, a rentative memory, method and ease in learning, lucidity to comprehend, and abundant grace in expressing myself. Guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to successful completion. This I ask through Jesus Christ, true God and true man, living and reigning with you and the Father forever and ever. Amen. 
of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to explain tonight, before I start, just a bit about the Catholic Toolbox. So the Catholic Toolbox is a radio show which I run, which airs on 17.01 a.m., and uh, that is the Australia's only Catholic radio. Now, when we think about Catholic radio, we probably think of EWTN, America, all, all the networks they have. Here in Australia, we only have one Catholic radio station, that's Voice of Charity, uh, and our studio's up in Mount Druitt, and it's the only Catholic uh, radio station. It's run by, it happens to be run by the Maronites, and um, so I air there every Tuesday night at uh, from 8 to 9 p.m. That's, uh, that's when I... So I run the Catholic Toolbox radio show and um, I'm also now the author of The Art of Practical Catholicism. Uh, it's currently being published at the moment. Uh, so that's my book and it will be released soon. This is hopefully just uh, the first time I actually reveal this publicly to anybody. So it's The Art of Practical Catholicism. That will be coming out in a couple of months' time. Um, so the Catholic Toolbox, the motto is the art of practical Catholicism. The idea is that we in the church today, we, we hear talks, we read books, great ideas, and we learn the faith, we need to do that. It's very necessary, especially in the time in which we live. But we need especially to then mechanically translate what we hear, what we understand, what we comprehend into action. We need to take action as Catholics. We're in a society today where the second that we step outside the doors of Holy Mother Church, we're out there in a society that wants to attack and undermine the faith. And it's very essential that we know how to practically implement our faith in the real world. A lot of Catholics who are faithful struggle to actually take the faith and implement it in their day jobs, to actually evangelize, so the Catholic Toolbox aims to provide practical solutions. So every week we come up with three practical tips, practical things that may be simple, short and sweet, but they're actually harder to do. But really we focus on practical solutions. So taking action with the faith. I hope the microphone's working here for Facebook. But we want to take action with our faith. So in the first 15 minutes of the show, we comprehend um, a teaching of the church, we study it, and then we go in the second 15-minute segment, we come up with three practical solutions. I have guests such as uh, familiar face here, Father John Rizzo, uh, we've had Bishop Richard Umbers, uh, Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, um, hopefully we'll have Archbishop Fisher in the coming months. Um, so we have different guests, and I always get them to translate into three practical solutions so that we can actually take action with our faith. Because at the end of the day, our Lord became flesh, not so that he can become a mere theory, but so that this law, which was inscribed in the Ten Commandments, becomes flesh in our lives. So then we can actually take action. For instance, let's say we study chastity or an aspect of faith. We want to then learn how to then leave this talk, leave this discussion tonight, go back to what you're doing normally and be changed and have, be equipped with a few more ideas of what we can do practically to live our faith. It's actually, it's actually a hard thing to do. It's very easy to study the faith, learn about the faith, but then when it can't, push comes to shove, you want to bring somebody to the faith in your workplace, um, you want to have those tough conversations over dinner, that's where your faith really gets tested. And that's where we have to be equipped. And the Holy Spirit 
to guide us so we can practically implement our faith and we can take action and live it as Christ lived it, as the walking and living and bottom of the truth. So tonight's topic is very important, as I said, apostolic authority, headship, leadership. I just want to pose some pure logic to everybody. What do you think would happen if we had no leadership within our country? Would we have anarchy? Would we have stability? Would people have so-called freedom? No. There'd be pure anarchy. I mean, getting 15 people over a dinner to agree where to have dinner, I mean, is hard enough, I think. <laughs> Imagine trying to lead a country with no, with no visible structure, with no government, with no prime minister, with no ministers. Um, that's going to be really a struggle. And it's it's going to ultimately lead to failure, to the demise of society. Anything without leadership is bound to fail. It's pure logic. Anything earthly, and we're focusing here on earthly things, so anything earthly which doesn't have any kind of leadership structure is bound to fail. So what I'm proposing here tonight is if this is pure logic, that there needs to be ordered leadership within the natural, within natural law, there has to be leadership, order in all things, there wouldn't Jesus Christ, who is God, have engineered his church with some kind of leadership to guarantee that the truth that he's conveying would, would, have, would, um, would stand the test of time and can actually be propagated through all the generations? Surely, our Lord knew that humans are frail. Human leadership alone can't stand. You know, he didn't just give us a Bible. So that's, or he just didn't give us, oh, well, this is my word, go into all the towns and preach it with no visible leadership so that we can actually know what the truth actually is. Because you think about how do you know why Chris, uh, what you know about Christianity? How do we know about what Jesus taught us 2,000 years ago? How do we know that Jesus existed? It's through the tradition, it's through the scriptures, but then who decided which books went into the Bible? The interesting answer is the church. I mean, what we can agree with with Protestants is that the Bible is the word of God, but Why? Who decided which books went into the Bible? Who decided uh, that these books are going to go in and others won't? It was simply the church. So I just want to start off by reading from paragraph 783 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And this discusses three things. The priestly, prophetic, and kingly authority of Jesus. So Jesus had three, three-fold authorities. As priest as prophet and as king. So he was a priest, he was a prophet, and he was a king. Those are the threefold authorities. And you'll see a little bit later why we as Christians who are made in the image and likeness of God and are supposed to become like our Lord as Alter Christus, as another Christ, we also have that duty as a priest, a prophet, and a king. So let's read from paragraph 783 of the Catechism. And I quote, Jesus is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit 
and establishes and established as priest, prophet, and king the whole people of God. Participates in these three offices of Christ. And bears the responsibility for mission and service that flow from them. So it's really important we actually think about it the mission and the service that flow from them. What are the missions and the service that flow from them? So Jesus was a priest. He was a priest. He offered sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, the priest was made to offer sacrifices to God. So, Jesus, what sacrifice did Jesus offer? Himself. So he was the priest and he was the sacrifice at the same time. So that's where he functioned as a priest. Jesus, as a prophet, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, functioned. What did prophets come to do in the Old Testament? They came to preach, to teach. Did Jesus teach? Exactly. He taught for three years in his ministry. So he functioned as a prophet. And Jesus, as a king, what did he do? He governed, he commanded, and he ruled this earth as the king of heaven and the king of earth. And um, so those three, it's very important that when we look at Jesus, we see that he has three distinct authorities and three distinct functions. So he came as priest, prophet, and king. And let's now go into paragraph 786 of the Catechism. And this is very interesting. Finally, the people of God shares in the royal office of Christ. So we share in those threefold powers of Jesus as priest, as prophet, and as king. Surely not in the same way. Jesus offered sacrifice in the sense that he was the sacrifice and he offered it. We're not offering it in that sense. As prophet, in Jesus taught with authority. We don't have the authority to create faith, morals, and what we believe. And as king, you know, Jesus uh, ruled. But we have our own special way of being a priest, a prophet, and a king. So as priests, we can offer sacrifice by, by our prayers. We can offer sacrifices united with Jesus through the merits of Christ. As prophets, we can preach. We have a duty to evangelize. As Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and preach to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have a job to do. We have a job to evangelize everybody who is outside the walls of the church. Why? Because we have salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Nobody will come to the Father except through me. That doesn't mean everyone's banished. But we have a duty to bring the light of Christ out to the real world. So that's our job in terms of being a prophet. And as kings, for instance, let's take an example. How do we function as kings? In our families... How many of you are parents? Can I get a show of hands? A few parents here. My mum is also here. Um, so as parents, you govern your families. You, are, as a king and as a queen, you govern. Your, you are heads of your families. In that sense, you're a king and you're a queen. So you govern in that sense. And um, so though I think... I think when we really think about it, our Lord wants us to become like him, not in the literal sense, but in that spiritual sense that we are priests, prophets, and kings. So now we have a bit of a foundation. I think everybody here tonight would probably understand and understand a little bit of the gist of what I'm trying to get at, that we, are, we share in some authority with Jesus. 
We're not our Lord. We're not, we don't have that ultimate authority, but we have some authority we share with him through the merits of Christ, not by our own merits. So I want to touch on the first thing. So we talk about leadership, uh, leadership and headship and submission. Why do we obey the church? Why do we listen to what the church says or what the church teaches? Well, let's go into the first leader. The first leader of the church was St. Peter. So let's touch on the papacy. So the papacy is basically the office of the Pope. The office of the Pope needs a lot of explanation, especially the people out there in the world. The office of the Pope, I think, is probably one of the most misunderstood teachings of the church that most people don't actually know. I mean, people, I remember at school, we had a conversation with a few Orthodox people in my school, and Orthodox people don't really, um, they, they, they don't recognize the Pope as a legitimate bishop who is the head of the church. They have their own patriarchs and bishops. But we got into the conversation, he said, well, well, the, the whole idea of the Pope was political. It wasn't very, it wasn't rooted in theology. It doesn't have anything that comes from Jesus. So who is the Pope? When we look at the visible structure of the church, we see the Pope, we see the bishops, and we see the priests. And tonight in Headship and Submission, we want to focus on why we follow the church, why we place our faith and our trust in the Pope and in the bishops, and in the priests. So, but in order to understand that, we need to have a theological foundation on where this actually comes from. Where does the whole idea of the Pope come from? Was it just a made-up political idea that came through the Middle Ages, as my Orthodox friend used to argue? You know, it was just more of a political uh, figure kind of title? Or does it directly come from Jesus Christ, from his mouth? Did Jesus Christ institute the papacy? We're going to find out. I'm getting excited. Is everyone excited to know where the, where, where the papacy came from? This really sort of saved my faith because, in a sense, I'm someone, I go back to basics. Why am I believing the church? Back in 2009, I questioned that because, you know, you go to school, you don't really learn your faith sometimes um, in, in the schools, and you really have to dig and do your own homework by yourself to discover the teaching of the church. And what did it for me was the papacy. Why does the Pope have authority? Where did the papacy come from? And let's now find out. I'm getting excited here. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. That's, that's the key verse. Whenever a Bible preaching evangelical, and I have great friends, a lot of friends of mine, um, uh, uh, Bible-believing Christians, Baptists, Protestants, Hillsong, they always come to me and say, oh, well, I have authority in Jesus. Where does the papacy come from? Praise God. <laughs> um, where it comes from is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. That's the real focus here, and we're going to study that intensely. And um, I believe when we understand the authority of the Pope, the natural authority of the bishops comes right after that naturally when we look at Scripture. So, Pope, bishops, priests. Let's focus on Pope and bishops. So, if I don't run out here tonight, run out of time tonight. There's just uh, the hardest part of the radio, you know, 
doing radio, you know, for the past uh, two years has literally been keeping so much content within one hour. Like, it's so hard. People say, oh, well, it's a whole hour. You have to speak about it. You're packing in so much content that you need to study and not just study and read about, but really understand it, really immerse yourself in it. So we're going to try to keep it as short as possible here tonight to fit in as much as we can. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. So 16, verse 18 to 20, and I quote, And Jesus, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let's read that again. So he was saying to Peter, when Peter, when Peter made a confession of faith and said, you are the Christ, the son of the, he asked, who do men say that I am? He said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And then our Lord proceeds to say, and I tell you, you are Peter, Petros in Greek, Petros. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So if we look at the Greek text here, the word Petros, so Jesus changes Peter's name from Cephas, which is in Greek, a small rock, to Petros, you are a rock, you are a border, a, a, a boulder stone. So, Pet, uh, so Cephas to, uh, to basically Petros. Where do we see in the Old Testament a change of name? If we really think about it, it really starts with the beginning of Scripture itself in Genesis, where Abraham, his name was changed from Abram to Abraham, signifying a change of authority, a change of leadership in his life. So he went from being Abram to Abraham, so he got a promotion. <laughs> and, um, and so our Lord does the same thing here. I mean, most people just read, you are Peter on this rock, but if you read the Greek text, he was referred to as Cephas, and then it was changed to Petros. So you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And this, our Lord says something very interesting. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth. Let's hold up here, let's hold up here. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What do keys mean? Keys, most people just read through it and they think keys are just, uh, just some authority, some nice idea. But Jesus was a Jew. And to any Jewish person that reads this text back in the time and, and today, and Cardinal Ratzinger, our former Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, he, he often uh, sought the opinion of Jewish rabbis to understand what Jesus is saying. If we're going to read scripture with, with um, Baptist eyes, Pentecostal eyes, 2020 vision eyes, <laughs> um, we're not going to see it in its proper context. But Jesus, as a Jew, knew what keys meant of the kingdom. And, we're going to, and I'm going to reveal to you where this comes from. This comes from Isaiah 22, 22, where the keys mean authority. It means I'm giving you power to, 
to govern and to, and to make do with what I'm giving you. So I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he gives him the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which go back to Isaiah 22, 22, And we're going to speak to that. Keys come from the Old Testament. And we're going to speak about what it means in the Old Testament in Isaiah 22, 22 shortly. So bear with me. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is this language of binding and loosing on earth? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So is Jesus giving Peter the authority to create, make church teaching on earth and then that will automatically become the word of God that's backed up in heaven? Isn't that kind of risky? Jesus just gives the keys of the kingdom. What kingdom? His kingdom. Heaven on earth. So he gives him the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Just take it, do whatever you want. Isn't that risky for Jesus when he's engineering his church? I think it's risky. But then what we have to understand is later our Lord says, the Holy Spirit will be with you. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Because he knows that the Holy Spirit is with the church. There's nothing that Peter can bind on earth in terms of teaching, Priest, prophet, and king. Let's go back to what I spoke about. Jesus has what authority? As a priest, as a prophet, and as a king. As a prophet in terms of teaching, the teaching authority, the the church can teach just as Jesus taught. So when Jesus said, but I say to you, that kind of uh, way which Jesus says it, but I say to you, and he commands, the church can do that through Peter. So Jesus gives that same authority that he had to teach to Peter. And he knows that Peter's not going to come up with just any teaching or any of proclaiming the word of God and clarifying moral issues. What's the church's teaching on this? What's the church's teaching on that? He's not going to just create any ideas out of the blue because he knows he's sending the Holy Spirit to be their quality assurance program. And the quality assurance is the Holy Spirit. So, so that when Peter exercises this authority of binding on earth, let's say we have a, a doctrinal or a moral issue, we need a question that we need answered, we can take it to the church and Peter, the head of the church, can answer that question definitively. And I'm going to speak about the conditions where that can happen. And, it's, and whatever he binds on earth is bound in heaven. So it's basically the word of God when it comes out of the mouth of the Pope. And the first Pope, St. Peter. So let's now go and discover where this language of keys, of binding and loosing comes from. It comes from Isaiah 22, 22, 15 through 25. And I'll quote, and uh, some of you might get bored through when I just read through it, but I think it's essential that we really understand where Jesus is coming from. This is called typology. Typology is where there's sort of a parallel between the Old and the New Testament. Where Jesus says something, he speaks a certain language, he speaks in a certain way, he says certain things, but he's really speaking the same manner that was spoken in the Old Testament, and he's paralleling the Old Testament. We need to put on Old Testament Jewish glasses to understand what he's saying. And if you go back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 22, 22, 15 through 25, 
we had, um, and I'll read this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Go say to the steward Shebna, the, play, the palace administrator, what are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out my grave for yourself, hewing your grave on the height and chiseled your resting place in the rock? But where the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away. So this is Shebna. He was like sort of the prime minister of ministers in the palace in Israel. So Shebna is being thrown out of his job, is being fired uh, for the job. And he continues, to, and, so, and this is during the reign of King Hezekiah. So there was a king, King Hezekiah, who was the king and the head of the kingdom. And then you had the prime minister, who was the head of ministers under him, called Shebna. And Shebna is being taken out of his office, and he's being replaced with somebody else. So this is King Hezekiah speaking. In the day I will summon my servant Eliakim of, Hil of Hilikiah. And so King Shebna, and I want everybody to really remember what Jesus is saying. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Let's read this and really parallel what Jesus is saying and pick up the language. I will clothe him. So Eliakim is being appointed as the new prime minister. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hold your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key, the key of the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Does this sound familiar? So Jesus understood the language Jesus knew what he was saying when he said, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So King Hezekiah is appointing Eliakim as the new prime minister. And the prime minister in that context has the same authority as the king. So when the king is gone and the king is away, in the absence of the king, the prime minister, Eliakim, can exercise the same authority as the king himself. Does this sound familiar? Pope, Jesus is absent, second coming. Starts to really click here when we think about the parallels very seriously and the whole story of our Lord, how he's the king and he will return at his second coming. He's with us here in the blessed sacrament. But in his human form, in his human form, not through the Eucharist, he will return at the end of time. So until he returns, he has given to his prime minister, Peter, just like in the Old Testament with Eliakim, the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and loose on earth until he comes back. So this is the whole idea why the Pope has the same authority as Jesus to speak and to teach. So what does that mean? Does that mean the Pope can just teach Everything the Pope says is authoritative? No. There has to be conditions to this. So let's now go into Matthew chapter 18. Let's talk now about, so we've established that Peter has been given authority by our Lord to act in his place as head of the apostles. And then now let's go from Matthew 16, 18 to Matthew 18. In Matthew chapter 18, 
Jesus speaks the same language of binding and loosing on earth to the 12, all of them. So he gave Peter special authority to bind and loose on earth. And then he said to the, uh, the, um, the other 12 that, uh, and let's actually go through, let's actually go through what he actually says. He says, if, if your son, if your, um, if one of you sins or your brother, go to him and then if he does then not agree with you, take it to the church. So our Lord says if we have a dispute or if we have a, um, a disagreement amongst each other, in Matthew chapter 18, he says, take it to the church. For whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what, who he's referring to there are the 12 apostles together. So he's not just speaking to, he spoke to Peter at Matthew 16, 18, I give you power. Now he's speaking to the 12. Now we're speaking about bishops. And in each individual bishop has that same authority, um, not as the Pope, not as Peter, but has a, an authority that he shares with Peter. So you have Peter who's singled out, and you have the other 11 who are also given authority to bind and loose on earth, but obviously in communion with uh, Peter himself. So Jesus, we know, established in Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, 12 apostles. Why? Why did he choose 12 apostles? Because simply in the Old Testament, we know that there was a priesthood. God didn't just give us a written book. Because can you imagine the Australian constitution? Can you imagine just the Australian constitution without a legislative interpreter, without uh, magistrates to implement the law, to exercise it? If you just have a written word here, and then you're going to have maybe, what, five of you come around and each person come up with his own sort of interpretation, you're not going to really come out with that authentic meaning so that's why uh, in the Old Testament, naturally, there was leadership. There was a Levitical priesthood, and there was also um, the Pharisees. You saw the Pharisees, they had authority. Jesus acknowledged their authority, that they sit on the seat of Moses. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, there's something similar to the Pope and the bishops in the Old Testament, where the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. And the Greek term is, is um, cathedra. Cathedra. Does that sound similar? Cathedral, seat, throne. And so Jesus acknowledged that there was an authority in the Old Testament through the Pharisees. He says, and he says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, do what they tell you, but don't do what they do. To make that distinction between their personal life and their authority. So... Jesus acknowledges that the Pharisees, even though they were hypocrites in their personal lives, they still had authority because they sat on the chair of Moses, the cathedra. So do what they tell you. So they have authority to teach, but don't do what they do in their personal life. So whatever they get up here and they authoritatively teach, do what they do, but don't, don't follow what they do in their personal life. So our Lord establishes a distinction. When, he, when there is authority that's given in the life of, in salvation history, in the Old Testament, in the church, there's a clear distinction between 
the personal life of the person in charge and his authority. Let's take an example, a very practical example. Um, Father Chris Del Rosario um, and Father Peter Williams, when they come over here and they celebrate Mass, the reason why they wear vestments is to cover their personal life because Jesus is acting in their place. And the reason why we have rituals that are the same is that the priest doesn't make up or create his own liturgy. It's the same. So they're acting, their personal life is diminished. The same words will be said at Mass, and it's Jesus actually acting. So there's a distinction between the personal life of Father, who is still a sinner. Um, there's a distinction. So he's a sinner himself. He's, he's still human. But he has unique authority when he says the Mass, when he lifts his hand up in that confessional there, and he says, I absolve you from, my, uh, from your sins. I absolve you from, my, uh, from your sins. My sins. Um, so there's a distinction between your personal life and the personal, when, when there's an office, there's a specific office, there's a distinction between the personal life. So that person could be a sinner, frail in his personal life, but when he comes and does the work, the office that he's assigned to do, it happens. The mass happens, despite how sinful the priest is. No matter how sinful the Pope is, when he speaks, and I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead here, under the three conditions, when the Pope and the bishops come together and they speak authoritatively, their personal lives are left at the door. And our Lord uses them through the Holy Spirit, guiding them as instruments to convey the truth when we have like a, a, a theological or moral question. So I want to make that distinction because people say, oh, well, what if it's a bad pope? What if it's a bad bishop? What if it's uh, a bad priest? It doesn't matter. That's the beauty of our faith, of how sinful the priest can be, how sinful the bishop, how sinful the pope. We're all sinners. There's a distinction. The personal life of whoever has that apostolic office does not affect the work that they are doing. So if you had a really bad pope, and he sat down and defined the church's teaching on a matter of faith and morals and binded something on earth and was bound in heaven, we know the Holy Spirit speaking and guiding him, no matter how personally he's a sinner. Though there have been a lot of uh, great saints who are popes and uh, great bishops who are saints, uh, that's just an added bonus. So that's the point I make to people who aren't Catholic. They just look at the Pope, oh, well, this is bad, but this is good. Our faith doesn't depend on the, on the personal life of anybody. We have a quality assurance program through. Our Lord knew what he was doing when he designed the church. He knew that, you know, humanity is sinful. We can't even agree in Parliament on anything. We can't even agree on anything. But he knew that if the truth of my word is going to be conveyed to all generations after the apostles were commissioned, there needs to be some kind of certainty that the, uh, there is, uh, there's authenticity to this. By what authority? That's the question we really have to ask. So does the Pope and the bishops together have uh, authority by themselves? No. Uh, on every single thing? No, that's uh, a very serious error. So the Pope and the, and the bishops together 
pr- teach infallibly, that means whatever the church teaches has no error. It is literally the word of God the same way, let's say, when Jesus would have said, um, I tell you, but I tell you in that commanding sense. When the church says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. It's not we, oh, we agree. It's we. So the Pope speaks on behalf of the faithful. In that sense, he's literally the Holy Spirit guiding him when he's exercising his authority. Now, not everything the Pope says is infallible. For instance, Popes make mistakes. The Pope can't be infallible on science. The Pope can't be infallible on on physics, on chemistry, and especially, let's say, on pastoral matters. They can make mistakes. The only place where the church in its teaching authority is authoritative and, uh, and, and literally infallible and doesn't make error is under three conditions. And remember these very clearly. The three conditions are that it's on a matter of faith and morals. So the Pope can't come out and speak about science and we expect it to be the word of God. How handy would that be? We'd figure out all the scientific theories, we could do things, but it's only on, the Pope can only speak authoritatively using his office as Pope, as successor of St. Peter, on, fa- on faith and morals. So it can't be on anything else. That's his scope that our Lord gave him. It has, he has to be speaking to the universal church, and he has to be speaking using his authority and intending to use his authority. For instance... Let's look at Acts chapter 1. So our Lord commissioned the 12 apostles with this authority. Why? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And so it was significant. 12 dioceses, diocese, area, 12 tribes of Israel. So he picked 12 apostles. Now we have more tribes of the new Israel, the church, which is every diocese now. Diocese Parramatta, Archdiocese Sydney. It's a literal territorial area where a bishop governs. Now... Jesus selected 12 apostles. What happens when they die? Wouldn't that diminish and his whole structure finishes and ends with the last life of the apostle? No. Our Lord was very smart. He knew that it needs to continue for all the generations, all the ages. That's why when Judas Iscariot unfortunately uh, moved on, they, they were short to eleven. What did they do in Acts chapter 1, verse 26? They elevated Barnabas. They added Barnabas, a new disciple, to the office of the 12. So they cast lots. They elected him. They, they added him to the office. And guess what the Greek term that's used when they elected him and told him, look, join us as part of the 12. Episcopus. Episcopus literally translates as bishop. So let's now raise him to the office of Episcopus, Episcopoi, so bishop. So this idea of dynastic succession, let's go back to Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. When Jesus was speaking this language, he was intending that there was going to be succession to the Peter himself after he died, as someone taking his place, when he died, he hands the keys down to the first person, hands the keys down to the second person, hands the keys down to the third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Um, so we had Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement. And so that succession, the apostolic, what we call apostolic succession, um, was intended by our Lord. And the same with the 11, through the bishops. 
So every bishop you see in this world today can trace his lineage back to an apostle of the 12. Can any church claim this? No, except the Orthodox, but that's, a, that's another problem because they, imagine with the Orthodox, it's just basically we follow a bishop, but that bishop doesn't want to be in communion with the Pope. And that's a whole other topic. But apostolic succession is where we've received the authority th- from the popes and the bishops who are here with us today in our generation because our Lord surely intended that till the end of time we can hear the word and we can have moral issues settled and we can have leadership. He intended that for all the ages till he comes back. So he gave the keys of the kingdom to the prime minister, Peter. He left, ascended, and is seated at the right hand of the father. When our Lord comes back, he'll hopefully take the keys back and there'll be the new heaven and the new earth. So there's that succession. That's what gives us assurance that this authority that Jesus and this church that Jesus designed will never fail. It continues through time and the Holy Spirit is with it. So every single pope, we have 265, 66 popes, I'm not exactly sure the number. We have Pope Francis going back to Benedict, John Paul II. You can get that beautiful chart that shows you the succession back to St. Peter himself. And every bishop, uh, I'm sure there's records and it can trace lineage and apostolic succession. We call that apostolic succession back to an apostle. So where do we see this authority that Jesus uh, institutes um, implemented? We see it in Acts chapter 15 where they had a moral issue. Do we circumcise according to the law of Moses? They had a dispute amongst themselves and they said, oh, Let's take it to the church, to the elders in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. You can show people an example where, okay, well, this is all nice theory that, you know, Jesus, keys. where is it used in Scripture? Well, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 speaks about Jesus, uh, the apostles disputing about, do we circumcise still? Do we baptize? What's, what's the deal here? This is a moral question. Do we get our Bibles out and argue? Ah, there was no Bible to 400 years later, which by the authority, the church decided which books went in there because they had that same authority. So that's interesting. Next time you see a Bible-believing Christian, they say, oh, in the name of the Bible. Well, the one question I ask, and this is the foundational question, who put that Bible together? Who decided which books went into the Bible? Who? Oh, well, they were sort of written by the apostles. No, they didn't have a Bible for 400 years. It was the Pope Damasus I in the councils of Carthage and Hippo after the, a few synods and debates about which books are supposed to be read at Mass. <laughs> the only reason we have a Bible is because we needed readings, we needed writings to read at the liturgy. So there was a liturgy before there was a Bible. You would have went into the early church in the first few hundred years of Christianity. You would have heard, you know, a fellow Christian get up and say, a reading from the letter of Clement to the Corinthians. Clement is the third pope, Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement, sorry. Third pope and fourth successor of Peter. Why didn't that book make it into the Bible? It really, everything comes down in our faith to by what authority? How do you know what you know about Christianity? How do we know anything? That's what I say to my Protestant brothers and sisters. 
The only reason you know is because our Lord guaranteed he knew a book wasn't going to cut it for 2,000 years through generations, through human error. He knew I'm going to design this with the Holy Spirit, but how's it going to be enacted? You know, he's not going to come out of the sky every time. He uses us as human beings. He appointed 12 apostles and their successors through the ages to guarantee the truth. So you know that when the church defines something on contraception, on euthanasia, on abortion, when the church defines the immaculate conception of Mary, when it defines the, um, the infallibility of the Pope, we know under these three conditions, on a matter of faith and morals, yep, check, addressed to the whole church. He's not addressing, you know, the bishops of Australia or Canada. He's addressing the whole church. And he's intending to use his authority as Pope through a document or an encyclical. That is authoritative. The church has that power and that headship and that leadership. That's the reason why we believe, because we know the church, our Lord guarantees it through his church. I got a little bit carried away here because there's just so much within one hour to condense about this beautiful teaching. But I hope I've planted a seed here tonight. And may I recommend that you go on to resources like Perusia Media. So you can go to www.perusiamedia.com. You go through to, um, let's say, resources like the Apostolic Fathers, the early church writings that didn't make it into the Bible. They're called the Apostolic Fathers, if you want to take notes. And start your study. Start your investigation, because you really have to understand the whole reason why we, why we obey, why we accept this leadership and this headship of the church's authority. It's because Jesus said so. Jesus instituted it. So let's now read from Lumen Gentium, the official teaching of the church, the dogmatic constitution, what the church teaches regarding this. So we've established in Scripture our case, and, and through... Um, through the words of our Lord and the Old Testament, and then we see this being exercised in Acts chapter 15, where they actually carry, use this authority to define, in Acts 15, um, let's just go into Acts 15, where our Lord, def- uh, our Lord threw, his, threw Peter at the head in the council of Jerusalem, where they had a dispute, do we circumcise, do we baptize? Eventually, what happened was, they went up, they debated about it, they all debated in the room, bishops debating, and then Peter got up and says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, alone, and uh, he defined it. He defined what the church teaches. Did he say we believe as in like the consensus? They were all arguing. So he got up, Peter, and says, we believe this. Three criteria. On a matter of faith and morals, check, yes. Do we circumcise or do we baptize? Addressed to the universal church, he says, we believe. He's speaking on behalf of the church in the place of Jesus. We believe that this is the church's teaching. And the third thing, he's using his authority as Pope. So Peter, as authority, he gets up, he fulfills these three conditions. Therefore, it's, it's, a, it's a binding statement and it's literally gospel. So we see that authority being exercised in Acts chapter 15. But let's see um, now, read a little bit from Lumen Gentium, which is a document from Vatican II. And I quote, uh, paragraph 25, Bishops teaching communion with the Roman pontiff are to be respected as witnesses to the divine and Catholic truth. In matters of faith and morals, the bishops speak in the name of Christ and the faithful are to be respected and their teaching 
is to adhere to with religious assent. So the Roman pontiff, the Pope, it's just the title for the Pope. The bishops teaching in communion with the Roman pontiff are to be respected as witnesses to divine and Catholic truth in matters of faith and morals. Not in matters of science, not in matters of anything else, just faith and morals. That's the scope of our faith. Uh, of our faith. And we're to adhere to it with religious assent. So it goes into the live, live Christ, share Christ principle of headship, leadership. Why do we adhere with religious assent to what the church says as the church defines? It's because our Lord instituted it that way. So we know that we know what our teaching is. We know what the truth actually is. So that's just, I just covered one area, if all of you know, it's just the teaching authority of the church, the prophetic authority. But Jesus is priest, prophet, and king. So the priestly authority is the sacraments, the ability of the priest to share with his bishop and the pope in the sacraments. The prophetic authority is this teaching authority. And the kingly authority is that earthly governing sense through canon law. Have you guys realized the church governs us in an earthly sense? We have um, our schools. We have, um, we have actually a church tribunal across the road. It's an actual courtroom where, let's say, there's an annulment case, a divorce case, and the church assesses it like it's a, like it's a court. The church has that kingly authority from Jesus to govern on earth. Priest, prophet, king. Those are the three functions of Jesus, which he gave to his church, and we see that today. So what we see now, the Roman pontiff together with the, uh, the bishop's teaching is very, we look at the, what Jesus designed and instituted, is extremely similar. It's, it's practically, it's been carried on for 2,000 years. Look at that consistency. And I'd love to go into a lot more about what the early church was actually believing, what they say about the Pope. But I really recommend you go through the, um, the Apostolic Fathers. So let, as I always like to end, I don't leave any, just like with my radio show and the podcast as well, I leave with three practical tools. So that you can, you've learned all this truth tonight, this beauty and hopefully I planted a seed for you to go and carry out your own research and study. But something, three practical things we can do to then live this in our day-to-day life, this aspect of the faith are practical tool number one, incorporate prayer for the Pope and the bishops into your weekly routine. So pray for the Pope, pray for the bishops, offer up a rosary for Bishop Vincent and offer up a rosary for the Pope. Pray for them regularly because they are our leaders. Because why? We, we studied tonight why. Our Lord instituted them. It wasn't just some made-up political idea, oh, we'll have a Pope. It comes from our Lord himself. Sure, there was no Vatican, there was no title Pope, but it's that authority that's there. So that's practical tool number one. Don't forget to pray for the Pope and the bishops. Incorporate that on a weekly basis. Offer up, you know, two hours of work maybe or some sacrifice or penance for the Pope. You know, it's a very stressful job, you know, governing the church, especially during these times. Practical tool number two, write and meet with your local bishop. Have a good relationship with your bishop. He's the shepherd of the flock, and we're very privileged here at the cathedral. As I spoke about cathedra in Greek, cathedral. Cathedra means seat, the chair of the bishop. He governs this diocese from this mother church. So let's... Let's talk to Bishop Vincent. Let's, uh, let's uh, email Bishop Vincent. Let's, uh, 
let's, uh, let's talk with any bishop. If you come from another diocese, get to know your bishop and pray for your bishop. And if you have any concerns, speak with them. Get to know them. I think there's a big divide between the bishop and the people, but there isn't, really. I mean, we have a great bishop here and, um, and, uh, and get to build that relationship on that personal level. You really understand and really live that truth of that authority. It's not just, as I said in my talk, Authority doesn't refer to, oh, he's here and I'm here. It's literally a special place that our Lord instituted so that we can have assurance that what we believe comes from Jesus directly through the use of certain people to define his teaching and govern his church. Number three is, I would say, and uh, I had a bit of thought into this, is Come to Mass at a cathedral. See, experience in the liturgy. The liturgy speaks words to us. The rituals, the symbolism when the bishop puts on his hat, the fact that, you know, we have to cover our, when we touch things that come from the bishop. There's a lot of symbolism and theology that the Mass preaches to us and teaches us about the office of the bishop. And uh, wherever you are in the world, always visit a cathedral because that's where the bishop resides. And it helps you to incorporate prayer and understanding of the spiritual life of the bishop into your day-to-day life. So I think we'll leave with, um, with that. That's been a lot tonight. But look, thank you. You've all been very patient with all this theology that have, um, I've imparted onto you tonight. And if we can end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, O Holy Spirit, enlighten my understanding to know your commands. Strengthen my heart against the walls of the enemy Inflame my will, I have heard your voice, and I do not want to harden my heart to resist by saying, later tomorrow, nunct chiopi, now lest there be no tomorrow for me. O spirit of truth and wisdom, spirit of understanding and counsel, spirit of joy and peace, I want what you want. I want it because you want it. I want it as you want it, and I want it when you want it. Amen. Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much tonight. God bless you all. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Charity.